You're listening to the Just Japan podcast. Everything you want to know about Japan. Well, hello, and welcome to the Just Japan podcast, episode number five Remembering the Tohoku Earthquake and Tsunami. Greetings, everyone. This is your host, Kevin O'Shea, otherwise known as Busan Kevin or Jayland Kev on YouTube. And I want to thank you all for stopping by and taking a listen to episode number five of the Just Japan podcast. Now, to start things off, I just want to say thank you so much for the tremendous success so far of the first few episodes. At the moment, we are actually on the Just Japan podcast getting about 2,200 downloads per week, which is pretty amazing considering、um, it's only been about a month since I've started this podcast. I'm very pleased, very pleased. Now,、um, episode five,、um, as you can see by the title, the 2011 Tohoku Earthquake and Tsunami, is kind of a remembrance episode. And I have a very, very interesting interview coming up in this show. But before we get into talking about the Earthquake, which happened three years ago, the, tr- the, the tremendously devastating earthquake that happened three years ago here in Japan. I first want to mention、um, some things, some issues with my voice this week.、Um, there's a possibility I may start coughing.、I'm, I've been having some kind of breathing issues due to the、uh, heavy air pollution.、Um, I think it's a PM level of 2.5 or more. There w a s actually warnings put out in the Kobe area where I live, Kobe Osaka area,、um, that young children should not be playing outside, elderly should stay inside, and people should not be outside exercising because of the air pollution. Now, Japan itself is quite a clean country, and there is not a lot of pollution.、Uh, typically, where I live here in Kobe,、uh, skies are normally blue, there's no pollution at all.、Um, there's really no, very little industry around the area where I live. And because of the geography being on the ocean with the mountains,、um, there tends to be a lot of wind blowing through, and the skies are normally very clear. But if you've been following the news, you are aware that in China, there is a very, very serious, catastrophic issue with air pollution. And in Beijing and many cities throughout, well, just pretty much the entire country,、um, the air is pretty much brown.、Um, uh, the pollution is so bad that it's completely, literally off the charts, and there's nothing. The, the, the measurement scales that measure the pollution,、um, they're not high enough, basically. <laughs> so, that pollution from China is blowing over、um, towards Japan, over Korea, and then to Japan. It happens every year around this time, but this year is particularly bad. And I've been waking up in the mornings with blood red eyes, a lot of eye strain, irritation.、Um, I'm coughing a lot. And this morning was quite bad. I woke up this morning and Basically, felt like I had a smoker's cough, and I don't smoke. I'm a recovered smoker.、Um, I used to be a heavy smoker, but I quit smoking about 10 years ago. And、um, in one YouTube video I made today, I posted on my JLine Kev channel, I、uh, basically equated it to how I would feel after a night of heavy smoking and drinking at a nightclub when I was in my early 20s, and how I would feel the next day. Well, that's how I feel today、um, without the heavy drinking and no smoking. So, it's been pretty rough. So, we actually went out today to Joshin, which is a very large chain of electronic shops、um, here in this part of Japan. And we picked up a Daikin air filter. So, we've got an air filter now in the house. 
And, you know, um, it was expensive, but it's a worthwhile investment considering that I have two very young children. I've got a 10-month-old baby and a three-year-old boy, so we want to make sure that they're okay. And honestly, I'm the one who's being affected the most by this air pollution um, in our household. But uh, today when I looked off uh, my balcony at the, the mountain range, the Rocco Mountain Range in Kobe, which is normally very clear to see with blue, bright blue skies, um, the air was white. Now, Wednesday, the air was brown, which was really nasty. But, okay, so it is now the weekend of March 1st and 2nd. March 3rd in Japan is Hinamatsuri. And this is a very big deal. It's a festival. It happens every year on March 3rd. And basically, Hinamatsuri is the girls' festival. And it's a celebration for families with young girls to pray for good health and happiness. Well, to pray for the, the, the good health and happiness of the young girls. Um, sometimes it's known as Momo no Seku, or the Peach Festival. Um, and what we have in our house displayed a gift from my in-laws. We have a Hina Ningyo. And Hina Ningyo is a traditional doll set, which is uh, often uh, displayed in a home that has a young girl around the time of Hinamatsuri. And um, I've actually I made a video about um, the Hina Ningyo in my house. I'll put the link in the show notes at busankevin.com. So remember, always remember the show notes are at busankevin.com. And look for episode 5. Check out the show notes and I'll uh, I'll embed uh, the video of Hininingyo. So we're going to be celebrating tomorrow. My wife's family, they're all coming over to our house. And we'll have um, some sushi and wonderful things. And it's going to be a lot of fun with our air filter going. Looking back on the 2011 Tohoku earthquake and tsunami. And this was uh, one of the biggest news stories of the year in 2011. And basically what happened was on March 11th, 2011, at 2.46 uh, p.m. Japan Standard Time, a uh, magnitude 9 earthquake hit off the coast of Japan. Um, it was the most powerful earthquake to have ever hit Japan. And I think they say it was the fifth most powerful earthquake in the world since record-keeping began in 1900. Now, this powerful earthquake uh, triggered a gigantic tsunami. And uh, that tsunami, waves reached heights of 40.5 meters or 133 feet in some parts of Japan, um, specifically Miyako, which was a town in uh, Iwate Prefecture. So um, the tsunami in, in the Sendai area actually traveled inland as, as far as 10 kilometers. So uh, that's pretty intense, pretty amazing. Um, almost 16,000 people died. More than 6,000 were injured. And more than 2,600 people are still missing. So yeah, it was a big deal. <coughs> Sorry about the coughing. I'll try to edit all those out if I can. Now, um... Now, one of the, 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 the lasting effects of this horrible, tragic earthquake, of course, aside from all of the death and destruction and families that lost members, and the damage to the economy and the livelihoods of so many people, was um, that basically the tsunami hit the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant and it damaged reactors and there ended up being uh, meltdowns and um, people in that area had to flee. And even to this day, three days later, TEPCO, uh, Tokyo Electric Power Corporation, 
still don't have a handle on the situation and are, are still struggling to deal with it. And they're not dealing with it very well. So um, this earthquake, I was in Japan at the time and I was working just outside of Osaka. I'll quickly tell you a little bit about my story. It's not much of a story, to be honest. Um, I mentioned this, I talk about this a little bit in the interview um, that we have coming up soon. But I was uh, teaching at a private international school, and uh, it was the last day of school, so the kids actually went home at lunchtime, and it was only the teachers left in the school, and we um, had cleaning duties. So because it was the, the end of the school year, we were cleaning our classrooms, and then we were going to have a little a goodbye party. And um, we, uh, so yeah, so when this happened at 2.46, I, I was cleaning my classroom, and I'm really far away in the Osaka area. I didn't feel anything. Um, none of my coworkers felt anything. I wasn't even aware that this disaster happened until my iPhone um, started going crazy. Twitter was buzzing. Facebook was buzzing. People from all around the world asked me if I was okay, and I had no idea. And it was actually people over Twitter and, and stuff in other countries who were even like in the United States who had seen this on the news or heard about it on the radio. And they were they explained to me what happened. Um, but I didn't think it was a big a, de- a big deal. I heard there was a tsunami, and I, I checked on the. Uh, uh, on the computer, and I just, I don't know, I just, it didn't seem like, like it was a big deal, and it didn't impact me until I got home that night and turned on the TV and, and started watching, and then it was kind of, the, the next few days, you really realized what was going on, and my, my family was obviously very scared, um, a lot of family members offered to have me and my, my, my wife and my child, my son, come to Canada, um, you know, it, it was, it was kind of frightening, um, but, <clears throat> so I wasn't honestly really affected by it personally. But today, on the Just Japan podcast, in kind of a, a way of, of looking back at this disaster, um, I have a, a very interesting guest who uh, experienced things firsthand. He was living uh, in Fukushima Prefecture at the time that this happened. It was only about 10 kilometers away from the coast, um, and he lived very close to the, uh, the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant, and um, he actually had to be evacuated. And he's going to tell you this very interesting story. Now, um, Jeff, who I interviewed, and I want to say right off the bat, thank you, Jeff, for sitting down with me. Jeff is actually a coworker of mine, and he actually teaches at the next junior high school, the junior high school next to mine in Osaka. And he's from the States, and he's been teaching in Japan for several years. And he's got a very interesting tale to tell. Um, about you know, And this, this, it was really fascinating for me to listen to this, um, you know, someone who's actually directly... Um, it was directly um, affected by it. Now, um, <clears throat> so the third anniversary is coming up in, a, in, a, in about a week and a half, about, about a week actually after this podcast comes out. This podcast should come out on Tuesday night, um, the 4th of March, Japan time. And uh, yeah, so one thing I just want to say at the beginning, um, before we start the interview, uh, there's quite a bit of background noise. This was actually my first live interview. I've done... The other four um, online and recorded them um, using Google Hangouts. And this one, actually, myself and Jeff, we sat down in a local coffee shop with uh, my my MacBook and my microphone. And it was uh, it was fairly quiet, but there was quite a bit of... You'll hear background noise, you'll hear background music, you'll hear the cappuccino machine frothing from time to time. And we decided to kind of wrap things up um, when the coffee shop started to fill up with people. 
So there you go. Um, this Today's episode is actually going to be uh, a fair bit longer than the other four have been, but I think this is a very interesting topic, and he's got Jeff has definitely got a very interesting story to share. So uh, let's uh, uh, sit back and relax and listen to um, a very interesting tale of someone who was in the thick of things, basically, during the 2011 Tohoku earthquake. Please hang up and try again. We're here today in the Just Japan podcast, episode number five, and um, I've got a very special guest today. I'm talking to Jeff Quinlan, um, and uh, well, I'll just um, I'll let Jeff start off by um, just letting us know. Um, so, uh, where are you from, and what do you do in Japan? Uh, where am I from? I'm originally from Boston, Massachusetts, a small town outside that area. Um, and I've been in Japan coming up on six years. Just uh, I've been in AT. Uh, I've done all levels between kindergarten and uh, high school. Uh, mostly in the elementary schools and junior highs. Every all over Japan, Okayama, Fukushima, Niigata, oh. here in, uh, in Gyogo, Osaka. Oh, cool. So, um, just so you folks know, um, I know Jeff. I know Jeff through work. And, and by the way, you're going to hear quite a bit of background noise and some background music. That's because we're actually recording this uh, part of the podcast in a cafe, a coffee shop. First face-to-face interview. Yeah, true. It's I'm my first face. Yes, it's the first live interview with a live person sitting in front of me, not uh, not online. So uh, it will obviously sound a bit different. So Jeff, uh, Jeff is a teacher like me. Um, again, we we both teach together uh, in Osaka, and that's how we know each other. And the reason why I, I asked Jeff to uh, come on the show. Um, is because it's coming up on the 11th of March, which will be the third third, yeah. third anniversary of the big Tohoku earthquake and tsunami. And I'm sure everyone... Uh, I'm going to give some background about that, too, in the, in the beginning. Um, so, you know, I know for myself, I was here when it happened, but I was, I was in Kobe um, when it happened. So I honestly, like, I... What I, what I know about it would, is exactly what someone pretty much in America or Canada would have known. I just watched on TV. I never felt a quake. I wasn't affected in any way by it. Um, but Jeff was affected quite a bit. Um, so I'm going to kind of let him just kind of tell his story. Um, but, Don't let me ramble on. Oh, that's okay. That's what this is all about. I ramble on all the time. That's why I started a podcast. I got more people listen to me ramble. Um, <laughs> But um, so Jeff, Jeff actually he was he experienced it directly. He was he was in the, in the action, so to speak. So um, Jeff, tell us about your experience with the earthquake. Not sure. Um, yeah, that was because since it was in March, it's the end of the school year. So I had been in Kawashimura, a very small mountain village in Fukushima. Um, I was the the ALT at the junior high school. It, it was a, a small, a very very small board of education I was working for. They had one junior high, they had one elementary, and there was the one kindergarten. So I would just rotate. The whole board of education? Yeah, it was because because the town itself only had about six thousand people. Oh wow! Okay. okay so yeah. I mean, the junior there was just the one junior high in the entire area. So only were you like the only foreigner living in the area? I was the only foreigner. Wow. Oh. The other towns next to me would have their own foreigners. Okay. But we're so spread apart that you know it, it, it would take like an hour just to get to the next foreigner. Oh, really? That's wow. How far away we were. Uh, but the village itself. I'm gonna turn the mic this way. Actually, I think that might be a bit better. Yeah. Uh, the village itself was up in the mountains, so even though we were near the coastline. We, 
with the way the roads work, you you'd be winding down all the paths, like it's just very very small roads. Okay. Um, it, it would take it, it was at least like a 35 40 minute drive just to the next like area where I could do like grocery shopping. They had a McDonald's there, and that was about it. Wow. Oh, so so you were in Fukushima teaching. Um, can you tell us about the day of the earthquake? Yeah, it was. I'm sure, um, you remember vividly where you were and what you were doing. I remember everything. That's a good or bad thing. It's really determined. Yeah. Uh, that day, it was actually very. It was very coincidental that the, the earthquake happened when it did because that was actually the, the day of our junior high school's graduation ceremony. Oh, uh, okay, okay. So the morning. graduating class, we, there was only, I think there was about 15 students in that class. Okay. So everyone in the school, all the teachers, everyone, myself, we were all dressed up nice. So the parents came. We had the ceremony in the morning. Um, we, around lunchtime, we all, you know, did our photographs together. We all said goodbye and everything. Mm -hmm. um, the students went home around lunchtime just because, you know, with the event that there wasn't normal classes that day. So the teachers all had meetings that afternoon, so they said to me, like, oh, there's nothing for the ALT to do here today. You can just take the day off. <laughs> so I was actually home when the earthquake happened around 240, 246, I believe. 246, I think, yeah. yeah 246. I think 246, I think, was the, the official time, but I think by the time it reached me, it was closer to 248. <coughs> how long it took for the shaking to happen. I was home that day, and for some reason, like I, I never, I never do this, but it just so happens on this day, I, I took a nap that day. Okay. Like, I never, I never take a nap, and it, it just seemed like it was like kind of perfect timing that on that day I would be home and just randomly decide I'm gonna take a nap now. So I slept for an hour. I, I woke up. I was goofing around on the in, on the internet. My apartment was. It was one of the BOE-issued, um, like, government apartments. So it was a pretty big apartment. Okay. It was on the third floor of a really old apartment building. I probably, I think around 30 years old this place was. Okay. Um, so I was up there when the, the shaking started. I think for about a week before... Because even though it's up in Fukushima, and I know this is Japan, and everyone says, "Oh, there's earthquakes all the time," there really weren't. Like, no, there aren't. I mean, I mean, I've been, I've been, I've been here almost six years yeah. in Kobe the entire time, and I've, I can count on one hand how many earthquakes I've experienced, yeah, and exactly. even the biggest shake I've had wasn't that much of a shake. Right, right. So I'm wondering how how was it? How was that? I mean, that must have been yeah, yeah a massive. Yeah, in my shake. six years. Yeah, because even before then, I'd probably only felt like two or three, and it's just like nothing more than like you know, just a, a gentle like. Yeah, like an undulating kind of waving. Yeah. I, I've even had to like with a few we've had here. I've actually had to look up at like I've got a light in the kitchen with the, the yeah. string hanging down yeah. to actually look at the string to see if it's moving because I'm not sure. Yeah. Or, is it me? Is, is it, it me? You know, am I just did I have too many cans of beer or? Yeah. Yeah, even a lot of times, like, you would feel something, and you would say to the people next to you, was that an earthquake? Sometimes you'd be like, oh, yeah, it was an 
thing, but no one bats an eye because it, you know, it, for the Japanese people, it, it's, they've been, been yeah. dealing with it all their lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, but still, it's not as common as people kind of like. Before I came here, living in Boston, I was always thinking, oh, we hear about the earthquakes in yeah, Japan yeah. all the time, so I was kind of expecting. Uh, you know, it to be like a normal thing, but it, it really wasn't even in that part of the area. Okay. Probably about a month before, we had about a 4.0 earthquake somewhere around there, and supposedly that was like the record-breaking earthquake of that area mm. that um, that I was told about. I, I didn't feel it, yeah. but um, the, probably the week leading up to the big earthquake, we had... We were starting to get, you know, more rumbles. Just like, you know, you just feel the shaking. You can, the funny thing about the earthquakes is being in the mountains, you can, when you're sitting, like, in a quiet room, you can actually hear in the distance. You can hear, like, the rumbling. Really? And wow. And you can hear it, like, coming closer and closer. It's kind of like, like a sixth sense, almost, like... You know, because you know how they say, like, dogs and animals? Yeah, yeah. Birds up, they can sense the earthquakes. I mean, I guess I can kind of understand, like, where that's coming from. Because if you're, if, you know, being in the mountains in a quiet village where nothing happens, it's just me in that room alone. And if I got the window open... The I silence can, is deafening kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah. And you just kind of start <clears throat> intending, like, I know something's about to happen. And then maybe, like, three, five seconds later, you'll start to feel the, the shaking. I think only once have I ever had anything like just kind of like you know tip over or something on the table, but that was the that was about the totality of my entire earthquake experience leading up to the big one that everyone you know that's just been talked about yeah. day out ever since then. So on the day that it actually happened, I was home. I was home alone. I I was rested. I was just you know around the internet. It was a, you know, a March day, so spring was slowly coming in. Yeah. Um, there was no, like, there was no mini earthquakes that day, so it was just kind of, with the month before, all the earthquakes, the, the little ones were happening, like, multiple times a day. Oh, really? Okay. And then we had, like, a day of just, like, nothing. So I was kind of getting a sense, okay, well, whatever that, that was, it must be over. And the mass when the big one came. It's just like, I'm just sitting there. The room just starts, you know, it's, it wasn't even like a slowly building thing. It was just kind of like, you're sitting there and then just instantly, like, everything is shaking in the apartment. And I'm usually, when their earthquakes are big enough to be shaking like that, the shaking only lasts, like, five, ten seconds, and then it's gone. Yeah. And you just go back to your life. But this one... This one, it just kept getting bigger and bigger, and like, it just seemed like every 10 seconds, it would just like level up itself. You know, first like the table's shaking, and then like things are falling, like, you know, things that I have like lined up on my shelves and everything, they start tipping over, probably about 15, 20 seconds into it, just like everything is just shaking violently, like... You think you're like you're in a house that's just possessed by angry spirits, just like wow. the, a poltergeist throwing things around. Yeah, just like totally like unleashing itself. You got like you know, the light was swinging, the windows were all going nuts. Everything in the kitchen started hitting the floor. Um, my apartment, it was a tatami mat apartment. Okay. Yeah. So 
the way tatami mats work is they're not, they're not like bolted down like into the floor or anything. There's there's like they're, a grid of like cross beams. Yeah. That they're they laid come, on top of. Yeah, and they go on top of that. So when I was sitting in my apartment, everything started like shifting. The, the apartment wasn't. It got to the point where it wasn't even shaking anymore. It was kind of twisting, and I could feel. Jeez. And that's when you know, that's like, yeah, I was just like, I don't <laughs> even know what's going on. Like, I've never experienced this kind. Because when you think earthquake, you think up and down. Yeah. And maybe you think, A like, bit of side to side. Like, yeah, if you live in a tall building, it sways, right? Yeah, right, right, right. right. Like, just, you know, shaking. When you think shaking, you think side to side. But this one was going, like, it couldn't even decide which way you wanted to throw the building. And as I said, this is like a 30-year-old building. It was made of, like, concrete and wood. Mm. And... Who knows, like, how well concrete can hold up under that kind of pressure yeah. at that age. So where I was sitting, I was on, I was on a tatami mat, and the, the table and the chair where I sit on the floor and use my laptop is, it's like right on the border between the two, the living room and the bedroom. So the threshold between the two rooms is right next to me. So I just kind of, that was the first time I'd ever actually taken action in an earthquake because you know they say during an earthquake you know go to a stand in the doorway yeah or you know try to get outside or anything but with all the mini quakes that have been happening like by the time you realize an earthquake's happened it's already over mm-hmm. but this is the first one where like i actually had to feel myself oh like this is like the real deal what what happens what's going to happen after this so i Moved myself over to the threshold. I just sat there and I just waited. And that earthquake probably went on a good thirty to forty seconds. Wow. And the entire time, you, I was just like I was expecting the, the walls to start crumbling and the floors to fall through. Luckily, you know that didn't happen where I was because I was. I think was probably about about a hundred kilometers from the epicenter. Okay. So even we were like we were far away. So I can't even imagine like what was happening in Sendai and mm. Iwate Kansas. How how far were you from the coast? As the crow flies, it was just ten ten kilometers straight across. Okay. It's about three three miles roughly. Wow, okay. But so it, we weren't even I mean it's not even that far from the coast but, so, there there was the the big earthquake, and when did you, um, when did you first find out about the tsunami? Because I mean, I know like for in my experience yeah. that day, and I remember that vividly too. That was I was teaching at an international school, and that was the last day of the school year. Yeah. And the kids had all gone home in the morning. It was like a half day. In the afternoon, uh, I remember the teachers. We were cleaning our classrooms, so yeah. I was actually cleaning my classroom. I didn't feel anything. But my phone just started going uh, yeah, yeah, shit, basically. Right, right, right. And um, I've always been really into Twitter. And um, and I've got my... I actually have two Facebook pages. I've got my... my, my I'm Kevin O'Shea Facebook page. If I've met... If, if you're my friend or if I've actually met you in person, in, in, in real life, I've got that one. And then I've got my, my Busan Kevin kind of page. Mike Wall. And I would use that. The air quotes definitely surrounded that. Um, Aaron, I saw it. I yeah, yeah. yeah, no, Live it's... Live interview. Yeah. Um, that one, that, that Facebook page and then my Twitter just went, started going nuts. My phone just started buzzing and buzzing and buzzing and buzzing. Yeah, and there was like literally people in like America and Canada saying, are you okay? Uh, yeah, are you okay? Yeah. And I'm just like, and I literally, I'm telling like, what are you talking about? Like, what's going on? Mm-hmm. And... 
people are just saying it's all over the news. There's a massive earthquake. There's a tsunami. And I can remember, actually, like, literally, myself and there was a, 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 another Canadian teacher by the name of Katie. And we were curious. We went into the computer lab, and we, uh, I think we brought up, like, a BBC, BBC.com or something. And we saw some footage of, I don't know if it was, it was somewhere up in Uwate, Ken. And it just showed some kind of cars kind of floating in the water. Yeah, yeah. And we're like, oh, 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 that's rough, a little bit of a tsunami. Yeah. And we didn't really take it seriously. And we just, oh, a little bit of a tsunami, I'm sure everyone's okay. Yep. Turned off the computer and went back to cleaning. Uh, and it wasn't until like a few hours later when I got home. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I guess I was. And then I turned on the TV at home and then I realized, holy crap, yeah. this is major. Yeah, everyone's um, watching us now, the entire world. Yeah, and... I don't even think it really sunk in until, I mean, we know how horrible it was, but it was until the days after, the weeks after, when, when footage, people's cell phone footage, people's personal footage started getting out on TV and on YouTube and stuff like that, that you really kind of understood the impact. But um, another very fascinating thing, guys, about Jeff is that you're hearing where he said he lived. He lived in a place called Fukushima. And Everyone knows that name. Exactly. Everybody knows that name. That's infamous because of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear reactor. Yeah. Um, the nuclear plant, which was hit by the tsunami. Yep. And uh, really, really screwed up, basically. Uh, yeah. Because even though where I was, like your, your original question was about the tsunami. Yeah. And where I was in Fukushima, it, Fukushima is very, very mountainous. Because you got, you got the coastline and literally, like, not even a kilometer away from where the ocean and the land meet. That's where the mountains begin. So <clears throat> instantly, you're already beginning to elevate when you start heading toward my village. Mm. So basically, where I where I was physically, my students and my workplace and my home, the tsunami was no nowhere, effect at all. No effect at all. The the tsunami is not coming up the mountain. The mm. problem is at the base of the mountain. That's where Tomioka Machi and Okuma Machi, those were the areas near me that, you know, I rely on them for my shopping, that's where the train station is, that's where the highway is. Mm. That's like my life, my life support system is down on that coast, and that whole area was just like a, probably about a quarter of a kilometer into it, it was completely obliterated. Wiped up the map. Huh? Yeah, the train station was gone. The um, it, it stopped pretty much right where my supermarket was. So I don't know if the supermarket itself was affected, but obviously no one's going down there. Yeah. And as Kevin just said, the the nuclear power plant was just right up the road from there, and that's you know the key to my story here. Mm. That's like if it's the earthquake. If it had just been just the earthquake and just the tsunami. I would have been fine. I mean, everything that that happened to my apartment, like it didn't affect my my life, like per se. Like, yeah, everything's on the ground. A couple things are broken, but life continues. I can yeah. I can recover from that. So, even after that happened, like I didn't. My my internet was cut after the earthquake happened. I still had power. The gas went out, obviously, because just the safety systems had to kick in. Yeah. Um, so we had water. My my phones weren't working. I like I, I guess everyone everywhere was just on their phone that day, so I couldn't. So the networks were just down. They couldn't yeah. handle the traffic. Yeah, like my phone would ring, 
and people were calling me, I could see they were calling me, but I would never be able to connect the call. I'd answer it, and the line would just be dead. So, oh, okay. So, I, for that first day, without the internet, I, would, I was in the dark. Like, I couldn't, I, I turned on the TV, and I saw the images. I saw, I, I was seeing, like, some cities, and I saw, like, the, the tsunami coming in, but... And uh, even though I'm in, in Fukushima, I had just as much information as you did. Mm. So I, like, I don't, my, my Japanese level is very low, and I didn't, I didn't know that you can turn, like, English, they have, like, English, like, sometimes they, they can dub it. Yeah, yeah, there's a, there's a, usually NHK, yeah, for different yeah. programs and news, there's actually, like, on my remote control, there's yeah, a button there's I a can button. push, and then it turns it into, it changes into English, but if you have a... Now I know that because I have a Japanese wife who's like, Kevin, look, you push this button and this happens, right? Like my son was watching Curious George Day in English yeah. on NHK because you can do that. But um, on a big remote control where everything's in kanji, yep. um, if it wasn't for the fact that I have a Japanese wife who said that, I wouldn't have a clue. Yeah, and it's not even like an English button. No, it's, it's just a button. It's just a small button with some kind of kanji above it. Yeah, it just says something like audio input Yeah, something like that. You have to know that that's the button to push yeah. the through it. So I didn't know that when I was in, in Fukushima watching the news, so I was, what I was actually seeing was the Sendai airport. Oh, uh, I remember that. Was, yeah, oh, that, that was one of the big images that we, we saw around the world, it was just the airport, just being completely The airplanes away. floating and yeah. the cars and, and I was seeing, floating. like the ships like just being totally like lifted up, lifted up and shoved up into those boats. The towns and things, yeah. yeah. So I, like, I was seeing it, and I knew that, like, chaos was happening, mm. but I had no idea, like, how close this was to me. I didn't even know, like, where the epicenter of the earthquake was. I didn't, I mean, to me, for all I knew, it was just something that was just directly underneath me. It was, like, a small, like, local earthquake that just happened to be bigger than usual. It knocked my internet out. There was only so much I could do that night. And you got to keep in mind after an earthquake like that, the aftershocks are just you know one after another. So even though we had we got hit by the 9.0 around 2:46, probably every 10, 15 minutes after that, for the next what would turn out to be like the next four or five days, just every like 20, 30 minutes, just another earthquake, and it's wow. just it just never ends. Like, even after the, the, the big one, we got an 8.0 right after that. And even an 8.0 in and of itself is serious. That's a significant earthquake on its own. And compared to the big one, that was nothing to us. Yeah. We were just like, well, we already, we just had the big one. The 8.0, I mean, where I was speaking where I was. I don't, I wasn't in Sendai or Miyagi or Iwate, so I can't speak to them. But, yeah, that was my extent of the the earthquake damage, mm. but I guess what we could venture on to talking next about would be the nuclear. Yeah, yeah. Damage. I mean, that's something that I. I mean, I don't know much about your story, but you've you've told me that, you know, when when that nuclear plant when 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 Tepco finally announced yeah, <laughs> that they had it finally days after when they finally right. announced that there there was a serious issue. Um, yeah. What what happened with that and you? Yeah. Well, because. Like, I didn't even know about it my first day. My, my internet did go... I, I got my internet back the very next morning. Okay. So that's when I, I saw, like, I, I turned on, like, MSN's website and CNN's and just everything. It's just, like, huge earthquake, like, destroys Japan. And 
you see those, you know, every story linked on the front page has something to do with Japan, then at, at that point, like, Fukushima earthquake may be, like, in jeopardy or something. Just, at that time, it was just a little big blurb on the bottom. I was too busy fielding all my, you know, my email box, my Facebook, just comment after comment. The world wanting to know what's going on with you. Yeah, exactly. But as far as I understood, it was... It was over. We were, you know, we were halfway out of the woods. Now it's time to pick up and move on. Yeah. I just, I got in my car. I just went grocery shopping that day. Um, but venturing out, that's where, you know, just driving around the village, driving around the town, you're starting to see the damage as you're like going to the different towns. I had to use the. I didn't dare go to the. The, my normal supermarket just because I heard about the tsunami and all that and I didn't want to get messed up in that so I went to the other supermarket inlets okay. and just the lines of cars everywhere there's you know cops directing traffic everywhere mm. it's, that's when I just started to kind of get the feeling that you know you know this isn't over yet and then when I when I finally got back home that's when I talked to one I talked to another friend of mine she lived in she might as well a Japanese girl. Okay. And she was the one who was telling me, oh, probably don't want to be where you are right now because that nuclear power plant isn't looking too good right now. And I, like my, my social network back then wasn't, in that area, it wasn't really that strong. So I kind of didn't really have a place where I could just be like, hey, can I go like yeah. crash at your place? Just because... You know, the foreigner network, all the foreigners I knew were in the impacted zone, so I couldn't really rely on them. And I had just, I had been in Okayama for two years prior, so all my contacts were way, way, way back out of yeah. Okayama. So this girl that, she was a friend of mine, but like, we weren't like super close or anything, we were just kind of other friends. Mm-hmm. And she was the one like, oh, well, you can just like, just come here for the night and we'll decide what to do how we can handle this like the next day. Okay. So it was it wasn't the day of the earthquake, it was the it was the next day on the twelfth that um, it was I think that's when the, the first morning or not the morning, but like the evacuation order went out for people in the first ten kilometers. Where, the, um, the red zone yeah, so to the speak. Red zone everyone it was like mandatory evacuation. And then the the next zone out, the 20 kilometer zone. I was, where I was, because I was about 12 kilometers out, so I was kind of, kind of safe, but definitely, I don't want to be hanging around. No. So I, I took her up on her offer. So she lived, she lived about 50 kilometers inland, so she was a bit safer. But the problem is, the earthquake messed up a lot of the roads, so it wasn't, all, all the highways in that area were pretty much shut down. There was no, like, clear passage. So you'd have to take, like, secondary roads I, and the rural yeah, roads. Yeah, and... mountain roads, and, you know, just, luckily I, I had a, I had a, a navvy, so I, okay. I could follow that, but the navvy doesn't know where the road closures are. Yeah. So I'd drive, you know, a couple kilometers just to find out this road's no good. Oh. And I'd have to turn around and try to find another. And it was all going to a city I'd never been to before. Mm-hmm. It, it was nighttime when I was driving, so I was just kind of in a drive that probably should have taken me about 
maybe an hour. I think it ended up taking about two and a half hours. Okay. So just and the the other thing was since I didn't know, like, because they said, oh, the the power plant it's dangerous to be near it. We don't know what's gonna happen to it. We didn't know like how long this warning was gonna be lasting for. So yeah. I I assumed all right. They know there's a problem. They'll, they'll fix, fix it. it. They'll fix it. I can go home in two or three days. So when I when I left that night, I just grabbed like my essentials. I grabbed my laptop. I grabbed like you know just some. I grabbed my. I didn't even grab my camera. I grabbed. I my camera. camera. And then you know just like two or three days worth of clothes, and that's it. Got my car and I left. And it wasn't until much later in the week that we find out that this problem is not going away. Yeah, it st st still hasn't. <laughs> yeah, three years later, and we're still trying to decide. No sign of, I mean, I think they just had a, uh, they just had a massive leak of radioactive water right. from one of their holding tanks yeah. um, recently. Yeah. So it's still, I mean, that's that's an ongoing problem, a very serious one. So so you left, um, you left to go to your friend's place. Yep. And so basically you left almost all your possessions, your worldly possessions behind. Everything was there. <clears throat> and you didn't, you, you weren't allowed at that, at that point to, you, you, did you, is it a matter of like you just didn't want to go back or you were not allowed to go back? As far as the government was concerned, we were not allowed in that area. Okay. But I did, over the next few days, I did get in touch with my old uh, vice principal. Okay. Who was working in the, that junior high school. Mm -hmm. And his English is really good and he, he, he was a science teacher before he became uh, vice principal, so he he was very you know knowledgeable about like radiation and all the, the tools and stuff that we can use to you know measure the safety of the area. So he actually um, actually I had a friend from America. He sent me he had like a military grade radiation detector. A, a Geiger counter? Yeah, Geiger counter. He sent you one. Yeah, he sent me one. So uh, wow, always good to. Have connections. Mm. You, never, you never know who's gonna be able to help you out in yeah. times like that. So yeah, he sent me that. Um, I brought it with me because the uh, the vice principal. Because even though I had to be evacuated, and I think the like seventy five percent of the village was able to evacuate like within the the few days after the earthquake. Yeah. But a lot of them couldn't. So they 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 put the you know, in Japanese schools, the in, Jap in Japan, the Japanese schools act as like the evacuation like, centers. Evacuation I mean, center. you see that. I mean, yeah, I'm sure it's like that with your schools. All, all the schools I'm at, like yeah, they have a big sign. A big sign, like at the junior high I work at, and the three elementary schools, they each have an evacuation center sign on yeah, them. Yeah, and you never even think about. Which it. is really interesting because to tell you the truth, uh, the the principal at my my junior high school, he's a former science teacher. <clears throat> he speaks English very fluently, and he told me uh, one day when I, when I first started. He was kind of walking me around and showing me the elementary schools, and he said, "Look at this elementary school. This is an evacuation center." And then he told, he explained how it's like one meter below sea level, uh, the actual land where it's on. I'm like, "Oh, that would be very useful in a tsunami." Right. <laughs> but um, so so there you find yourself um with just a few limited possessions. You're away from where you live. So now obviously you're without a job, right? Yeah. Um, well, because I was in contact with because at that point in the year. Like the ALT companies, they, they don't give you, they don't let you know if you're continuing into the next year or not, or if you're being, you know, if you're going to change your schools or not. 
so they really wait to the last minute. They really do, and you and I, we're we're direct hire, so we get we got our answer like a full yeah. like month, yeah. You know, in advance of like other dispatch companies, like some some don't even find out till like a week before. Yeah, and, that, and just quickly, folks, for you, um, this is going to be something in another episode we're going to go to more in depth uh, about, but um, an ALT is an assistant language teacher who work in public schools. There's two basically main types. There's one called a direct hire, which are not so common. A, dire- a direct hire means you actually work for a board of education. Jeff and I both work for a board of education, so we're, we're, we're staff of that, of that organization. Whereas a dispatch company, dispatch ALTs, they kind of like it's a third-party company that where they. <laughs> it's, there we go, guys. We're in a cafe, so there's gonna be a lot of background noise. Um, but yeah, it's like a, a third-party company that um, they supply teachers for boards of education, and they take like a big cut of the money. <laughs> big, very big cut of the money. Um, so yeah, so yeah, like, like Jeff said, you really don't know what your future, where your future lies, until the very last minute with a company like that. So even as of March 11th, I still didn't know <laughs> if I was going to continue on to the next year or not. Which is less than a month away, guys. Like just so you know, the school yeah. year in Japan begins in April, the beginning Imagine of April. Trying to find a new job, you know. And every job, it's not local. It's not like you can just go to the next town over and there's going to be a job for you there. You know, you're you often enough you are going to have to move like total like states away. So, so, yeah, so you've got to find a job, you've got to find a new home. Yeah, all that. So, yeah, because they didn't... Each, each day, like, in that first week, like, we didn't... Like, I was expecting any moment to be told, okay, your school reopened, you can go back to school tomorrow. Like, I'm expecting that every day. But it, it ended up... I Where I ended up... Staying with that family, even though I was only supposed to be there like temporarily, I ended up staying there for three weeks. Oh, really? Oh, wow! And even there, fifty kilometers in, we we didn't have we didn't have water where I was staying. Imagine yeah. living three weeks without water. Wow! Like I don't know if this is like a standard like procedure for or, like not having water. If this is a Japan thing, but what the family I stayed with actually did to, for the toilet was they took a plastic shopping bag. They put diapers in it, and we just did our thing into the toilet, into the diaper. Because we, we had no water. We can't flush oh, really? the toilet. Oh. We can't shower. Yeah. Cooking, you know, anything we cooked had to be done with something without water. Wow. So this, um, the restaurants weren't open, obviously. They have no water. Yeah. They got no water, too. So um, we, did, we had power. My phone, my phone still wasn't working for probably the first week I was there. Mm. Um, and then car fuel, we didn't have car fuel. Like all, just every every gas station around, you know, they they would sell out of their gas, like you know, within the first hour of operation. And the the trains, like where I was staying in Shirakawa City, we were right along like the the major rail line, and there were no trains running for like the first like probably week and a half I was there. What we could hear though was the the helicopters. Okay. Every, like every hour, there'd just be like you know convoys of helicopters just going overhead. And mm. I, of all the things I remember of you know that this entire like episode of my life is just the helicopters it's always. Always helicopters. And they'd they'd always be in groups and just be like three or four just flying over. Mm. Mm-hmm. 
So getting supplies, even another another interesting thing they did was the supermarkets. They were just basically like on a statewide food ration, so they would only let everyone had to line up outside to get in the supermarket, and they were only letting people in, you know, like ten people at a time okay. to go shopping. I mean, luckily, everyone was kind of being cool with, like, you know, it wasn't like the first, like, group of people just grabbing everything, just clearing the shelf and taking everything with them. So when I did finally get into the supermarket, there was plenty of, there was plenty of beef and chicken. So I guess the Japanese people, they prefer the fish and, like, okay, the vegetables yeah. and stuff. So me, as an American, I was, I was happy just to get my hands on some chicken finally. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, we could grab, um, one, one story that... I remember was uh, instant ramen. I, I I I was walking around and I found a whole like you know display. There's probably about forty packets of instant ramen there. I was like, oh, this looks good. I grabbed one and I went. I went to find my friend because she was shopping elsewhere in the store. I, I tossed it in the back of the basket. She said, oh, she said that looks good. She's like, can you go get me one? I'm like, all right, I'll be back. And not even a minute later, I go back to the display. Forty packs, which is down to ten. Oh, okay. in, in just like that minute, that's just how fast like soup is going. Mm -hmm. And I remember the the bread, the milk, just completely, just completely empty. Wow. Jeez. So, when when did you finally leave the Fukushima area? When did you head? Like, where did well, where did you go after that? Like, did you come to? Yeah, sorry, I didn't, like, answer, I didn't answer your question about the about the job. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, that's that's, that's fine. That's fine. That's what you're saying is very interesting, so I don't mind. Right, right. Um, but like, so right now we both we both live in Kobe. Yep. Um, did you come and down this way? This no, is where you came afterwards. Because I was working for I was working for a dispatch company that was based up north. Okay. And I was in contact with them every day, asking them, is my school going to be open tomorrow? Can I go back to school tomorrow? Can I see my kids? Can I, you know, talk to the teachers again? Can I go home? Mm -hmm. And every day, the answer was like, oh, well, it's not, you know, we don't know. It's not really looking that good. And they were, they were, they were starting to send me offers. They were like, why don't you, like, we have a position open. And they were like, they, they wanted to send me like Tochiki Ken or Yamanashi Ken. Okay. Like, just different prefectures all together. Yeah. I think I ended up turning them down three times. I'm like, no, I want to go back to my school. I want to see my kids. Mm. It wasn't, it was probably like, it was, it was definitely like right up until April that they finally said, they're like, look, we understand you want to go back to your school. We'll, we'll put you back in your school, but for the time being, like we have a, a one semester contract. They're like, just, can you just go here, just do this contract, and then after that we'll send you back to your school. So I'm like, alright, you know, it's money, it's, I can get an apartment. They, they, what they ended up doing is I went to Niigata, okay. which is uh, directly west of Fukushima. So the other, the other coast. The other coast. And the crazy thing about Niigata is, is I ended up in Kashibazaki City, and that is actually the home of the world's biggest nuclear power plant. Oh, God. <laughs> so <coughs> The irony. The irony, right? So I was like, oh, I hope, I hope I'm not the chief Yeah. Of me living in the shadow of this behemoth mm. definitely not making me feel any better about my situation. Yeah. But the, the good thing about working in Uganda is it's a high school contract. So okay. I did get my first stab at, you know, doing some high school work. So, okay. So some good did come out of you know, this whole mess that I was in. Oh. So I, I, I did that experience. 
So then you were in Niigata, and, and did you just stay there the one semester, or did you stay longer? No, I ended up, I ended up staying. It was just the one semester because the what happened with that contract was it was it was designed just to be like a filler contract. Okay. Like because they they were gonna switch over to the jet program in August. Okay. But I guess some of the previous ALTs didn't want to stay like on where the contracts were because contracts usually. April is when like the big contracts yeah. come through. So I, I I'm assuming that those yeah, former they, ALTs they wanted to move on to something more permanent. Right, exactly. So they left. So they said I don't want to I don't want a three month contract. It's trying to find a job in August. It's really difficult in yeah. Japan. I mean, it's good for the people living overseas. That's the best time for you know the Americans, the Europeans, and all that. Yeah, but hiring season in Japan hiring is season hiring is season is actually like December, January, right, February, right, right. more December in. in in, in January for the following April. Yeah, they, they lock their jobs down really early, so they yep. have to sit Even in college, before they graduate, a lot of them already have jobs lined up. Yeah, 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 yeah. So yeah, I was in I was in Niigata for the four months there. The same company. Actually, what happened was in Fukushima, they had they had a new a new placement opened up in Fukushima because one of it, it was a jet. It was a jet village. Okay. But one of the jets, he, he didn't feel comfortable living near the, the power plant. Okay. So he actually went home, but he just wanted it to be like a temporary thing. So they hired. They arranged a contract with a dispatch company for someone temporary, and that's when they found out that I I myself was from Fukushima and that I had like a it was an elementary assignment. Okay. And, uh, I actually, I, I really, I prefer elementary over junior high in some in some ways. Yeah. So I was really happy to take you know this job. They were happy to have because the kids that were there, it was about fifty kilometers away from the nuclear plant. So I I could understand, you know, exactly what they were going through. If they had hired someone who was like fresh from like another country just drop them in there probably wouldn't have so much of an idea yeah. of how the kids like like why are these kids like so like anxious all the time the empathy wouldn't be there right exactly It'd yeah just, like, just for I'm, lack of understanding yeah, for like, I'm in Japan I'm happy like let's you know have fun and, yeah but with the kids they were I mean I don't want to make it sound like they're all like depressed and moping around and everything but you know it's just good that to have Cappuccino, anyone? <laughs> Cappuccino time, yeah. <laughs> um, that's okay, don't worry about it. <laughs> we are in a coffee shop. Right, we are. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I ended up spending, I spent the, the following year in, it was back in Fukushima. Not, it was a, a, a village, a very small village very similar to the one I was in before, but it was it was closer to the city, so it was it had a lot more of the you know modern amenities, okay. movie theater, selection of restaurants, Shinkansen Station was you know right around the corner. Oh, okay, okay. But uh, living because I mean you, you got to keep in mind that now we're living in a, like a post nuclear area and the reminders of this fact are they're just everywhere we they installed they installed uh, giga counters in 
in the school. So there, in the schoolyard, there was just a giant, like, it looked like a solar panel. Okay. But it was, it was collecting, like, the radiation samples, and there'd be, like, a display number, and it would tell us, like, um, what are they, microservits or something? Microservits, something like that, yeah. yeah Microsieverts or yeah, servers. Yeah, um, sure. They always say in Japanese, so I can't understand what yeah. they mean, but every day you have M to Millisieverts? Have, okay, I don't know. Could be. <laughs> yeah. Because I know there, I, I knew at the time, there's something like, if it's over like 1.0 or some, something around there, then you couldn't be in that area, you could like have to flee. But I think mostly we were around like 0.2, 0.3. I think the most I ever saw was like 0.4. That's like, it's of concern, but not enough to like really kind of damage you. But another another thing that was almost like you know painful reminders of the kids themselves they had to wear lanyards and on the lanyard was this, it was just a little chunk of plastic to the kids they I, I don't know if it was ever explained to them what this means but the, the chunk of plastic would have a barcode and there'd be like a serial number on it but what it actually was was a dosimeter so every day you know you got like six seven year old kids wearing dosimeters. It's just a sign of just like how terrible. I'm actually gonna. I'm actually gonna question. I. I I'm not sure what. What is that? What is a, a dosimeter? I don't know what that is. It's just a, a little. It's just a little tool that's just measuring how much radiation this particular you know child is exposed to, like in their daily life. Wow. Okay. So they would wear it every day for a month. Uh huh. And this, this, the village would collect them all. And they'd send them to. Uh, they'd send them to some university somewhere to be evaluated. Wow. And then they would get like a fresh one sent to them. So, wow. Basically, like, they're guinea pigs. Pretty much, like they're they're being watched, but they don't even realize it. So, I mean, to them, it was just like some, you know, another accessory for them to play with. Okay. And, you know, they just they always had to have it on them. So wow. it's just like to me, it was just like a daily reminder. Mm. That, you know, these kids, like this is their this is their norm. This is normal for them. Yeah. But not normal for anyone else in the world. Yeah, absolutely. It's just like, I mean, I did what I could to, you know, get their minds off it. You, you want them, you want them to have a normal childhood. You don't want them to be constantly reminded of what happened just up the road from them. Yeah. It's terrible. One of the things that I'm like really kind of disappointed in Japan is is. Everyone was talking about the soil and like the radiation, like the radiation, say contamination in the topsoil. So yeah. they were Japan launched this big campaign where they're like, let's like clean up the schools like first. Let's make that our priority. So every school that I saw, they took the bulldozers and like probably the top like three inches of of the the soil on the playing field. They just pushed it all like to the very end of the field. So on every field, there would just be like a mountain of dirt there. And what Japan had originally planned on was, you know, they would scoop all that up and they'd ship it somewhere, like some central location where, you know, like it wouldn't be in the children's like backyard, like literally. And somewhere along the line, they decided, oh, we don't want to, we don't want to do that plan anymore. Just leave it, like we don't, we don't want it in our backyard. Like that's Fukushima's problem. Just leave it there. So I was, I was like, because every day. So then basically the bulldozers just came in, 
pushed, pushed all, all the dirt into a pile and they just left they the piles just, there? They just left it there. It's, it, it, would be, it would be blocked off by, like, a string. So, like, and the kids would be told, don't, you know, you know, it's, it's poison, don't touch it, don't go in there. But kids are kids, you know, yeah. the soccer ball goes there, they're not going to stop. They're just going <coughs> to run up there. And, you know, so every day, you know, I'm just seeing the kids just running. I mean, I want to paint, like, a dire picture, like, you know, the second they touch it, they're going to, their skin will be, like, glowing green or anything. Yeah. But it's just, like, you know, at least make the children a priority. You know, let them, let, at least make their lives safe. Yeah. Wow. That's awful. Eek. Well, um, so, uh, when did you eventually, when did you finally, um, leave Fukushima? Uh, when did you decide to leave? Because um, I, I, I started in August, and I stayed there about a year straight, and after a while, I, I decided I wanted to, like, I kind of felt like every, you know, I've done what I can here. The kids, the, the kids' lives, like, they seem to have normalized at this point. There's not really so much more that I can do here. Yeah. And I decided, like, I wanted to return back to Kansai. Because I, I started in Okayama originally, so I always kind of felt that Okayama okay. was my home. So, and I'd explored Tokyo a lot and the areas up north. I felt like I didn't really get around Osaka as much as I would have liked. I never even set foot in you know, Himeji or Kobe before. Okay. So I felt like I wanted to go back and you know, just come back to this area and just kind of you know, fill out my experience. Okay. Well, I'm, I don't see the, the coffee shop starting to fill up a little bit more, so we'll probably uh, probably wrap things up. Um, I want to thank you, Jeff, for talking to us today. It's been really awesome, really interesting, very interesting story. Um, I'm also going to, uh, Jeff has given me some links of some different organizations that are still helping uh, the people in Fukushima, the children in Fukushima, and I'm going to put those in the show notes. Um, so if you go to boostonkevin.com, uh, you'll see the show notes for episode five. Uh, there's going to be a bunch of links in there. Also, um, Jeff has some pretty amazing photos he's, he took um, uh, after the earthquake. And um, he's been kind enough to give me permission to use a few of those photos. So those will be in the show notes as well. Um, yeah. And um, let's see. Do you have, any, do you have any, uh, any social media stuff that you would like to share? Uh, or any links? You don't have to. Like, uh, cut this out. Yeah. But, but what I would like to say is, like, I, if you want to help Fukushima, the best way you can possibly do is just don't be afraid to visit there. Mm. They... A lot of people, they just hear Fukushima and they just instantly think, oh, like, you know, you know, radioactive wasteland. Like, the, I know, danger, danger, I know like, the international, like, media just blew that whole up. They're like, oh, like, everyone in Fukushima is dead. And, you know, they're just like, all this, you know, just blowing the numbers up out of proportion. But it's it's not as dire as media is making it sound. And it's, it's what's actually happening is it's actually killing like the economy there and the livelihood the, the people there are trying to like rebuild their lives mm. but you know everyone's like afraid to touch anything made in Fukushima they're all afraid to go to Fukushima but I mean it, as long as you're not in the red zone the areas that even to this day are still blocked off uh, Okamachi, Okuma, the areas directly around the nuclear site you can go to Koryama, you can go to Aizawakamatsu, and you can enjoy, you know, the, the local amenities and the, you know, the local flavor, and it's, you know, it's, 
it would help them a lot because they need they, they need the economy to just so don't be afraid to go there and you know just enjoy it's a, it's a beautiful area it's, if you want to experience a real like country life um, Mount Bandai they got the five colored lakes there absolutely amazing so please just go go and check it out. Okay. Great. Well, again, thank you for uh, talking to us today, Jeff. No problem. And uh, that's it for today's interview. Well, now that was a very, very fascinating interview. And I first want to thank Jeff for taking the time to sit down with me in Kobe at a coffee shop and tell me um, his story. And I want to thank all of you guys for listening, of course. And um, just a couple of things I want to mention. Um, Jeff had a lot of really amazing photos uh, that he took after the earthquake of, of damage done in his local area and um, of, of, of things happening the, the weeks following. So you go check out the show notes at uh, boostonkevin.com. And Jeff has been kind enough to give me some of the photos which I've placed there, okay? So again, boostonkevin.com. Go to the episode 5 show notes and you'll see pictures that Jeff took um, uh, in Fukushima. Um, also, um, Jeff left me some links to uh, charities in the Tohoku region, which are currently right now working to help the people who are affected. There's a lot of work to be done yet. So go check out the show notes, and you'll see the links to those different charities that Jeff wanted me to mention. Okay? That's, go check, it out, check them out. I guess if you have any extra money kicking around, throw it that way. Now, I also want to give a shout-out <clears throat> this week to another podcast. I want to give a, a, a shout out to Mully's Place Podcast, okay? Um, at the same time, basically myself and my friend uh, Jim Mullins, who is known as Warmouth Strat or Mully on YouTube, he lives up in Shizuoka, him and his friend Dave, who live in Shizuoka, they both live in Shizuoka, have a new podcast uh, based in Japan. Uh, they're both long-term expats here. Uh, Jim, actually, I interviewed my very first episode of the Just Japan podcast, so uh, that's the guy. He has his own podcast, guys. Um, go to Just go to uh, iTunes and do a search for Mully's Place, M-U-L-L-Y apostrophe S, Place, um, and it should pop up. I'm also going to put a link in the show notes to the Mully's Place podcast. Okay, guys? So go check that out. Subscribe today. Now, you can reach me on Twitter at jlandkev, jlandkev. Um, you can find me on Facebook, the Busan Kevin Facebook page, and on YouTube, of course, youtube.com slash Kevin or youtube.com slash jlandkev. All those links will also be in the show notes. Now, again, thank you all for taking the time to sit down and listen to episode number five of the Just Japan podcast, and thank you so much for sharing it on social media with your friends and family and making the show such a success that it is turning out to be. Um, I'm pleased as punch, guys. Never expected to do this well so quickly. And uh, that, of course, just gets me excited to produce more content, to get more interesting guests on to talk about Japan and all things Japan-related. All right, well, thank you. And uh, my name is Kevin O'Shea, and I am, of course, the host of the Just Japan podcast. And I will be talking to you next week. So take care, be safe, and be happy.